Well, as we begin the season of Advent, our sermon series is entitled, Why He Came. And the first sermon is from John chapter 1, the gospel according to St. John chapter 1, the prologue of that gospel, verses 1 through 18. So if you're able to stand, get your copy of the Word of God and stand with me as we read the inerrant, infallible, and fully sufficient Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light or the real light or the genuine light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him. Who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He comes after me, ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, the answers to the question, why did Jesus come, are in your word. Uh, They're not in our experience, they're not in our emotions, they're not in our intuition, they're not in our imagination. They are objective, they are factual, they are absolute truth. We may not know all the reasons that Jesus came, but you have given us in your word all that we need to know. So as we begin this morning, I pray that you would help us to stay 
fastened to your word and focused on your word because we don't want to hear what anybody thinks about why Jesus came. We want to hear what you say. So speak to us your truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Who is Jesus Christ? Uh, you may think that's a settled question. Why would you even raise that question? Well, I would raise it. I'm not going to chase it this morning, but I would raise it because the church has fought for years over the answer to that question. In the second century, the third century, the fourth century, the fifth century, uh, the 19th century, the 20th century, and even now there are those who debate that question. It's a question about his identity. Now, for example, if you read John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, and you're talking to a member of the Jehovah's Witness community, they have their own Bible. And in their Bible, it doesn't say the Word was God. It says this, the Word was a God. Now, you and I know there's a big difference between saying the Word was God and the Word was a God. Uh, they debate then over his Identity, is he truly God or is he not? When we ask the question, why did Jesus come? Uh, we're asking about his activity. We're asking about what he's done, what he did, and what he's doing, and what he will do. Those two questions are not disconnected. Uh, they are intimately interconnected and interlocked. Uh, the first question, when we answer it biblically, who is Jesus Christ, leads us to the second question, why did Jesus Christ come? And the second question, why did Jesus come, get, leads us back to the first question, who is Jesus Christ? So in some sense, we will be looking at, during this Advent series, both questions, and we will want to hear the answers that are given in the Bible and the first of those answers is found in one word, the incarnation. God came to us as one of us. Because without him doing that, we have no hope. Without him coming to do what was necessary to fulfill the requirements of righteousness and then to offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins and a substitute, we have no hope. We are lost and undone. We are in darkness without any light at all. So we begin with the incarnation and we turn to the first chapter of the Gospel of John where this is laid out for us so clearly and so candidly that we can see it. And that's what I'm after during this series. I want you to open your Bibles and to see it. 
I don't want you to take my word for it because I have no word to give. I want to simply unpack for you what the Bible says in response to the question, why did Jesus come? And I want to let you know at the beginning that I hope that I don't say anything during this Advent season, nothing that you don't already know. I pray that everything I say, you already know that you don't have any, oh, I didn't know that. I simply want us as believers together to remember and to reflect and to rejoice on the reality that Jesus did come. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. One of the most magnificent and marvelous and mysterious statements in the whole Bible. John opens his gospel with the first 18 verses that we read this morning. It's known as the prologue or the introduction. Uh, One scholar says these 18 verses are like the foyer of a house. You know, houses used to be built so that you could walk up on the porch. Maybe you've been in these houses. Maybe you live in one like this where when you open the front door, you could see down a long hallway. And if the doors were open on either side, you could see everything in the house from the doorsteps. That's what the Gospel of John is in these 18 verses. It is a visualization for us of everything that is in the Gospel. Another scholar says that all the contents of the Gospel of John are found in the first 18 verses. The Gospel of John proper, if you want to turn there, ends in chapter 20 where John tells us the reason that he wrote his Gospel. As the Holy Spirit moved in his heart, this is what he was after. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And then the gospel ends with a P.S., an epilogue, an afterword. The disciples had gone fishing, at least some of them. Jesus shows up on the shore. I've stood there on that shore where they thought Jesus was when the disciples were out at the sea and they were fishing and he's on the shore and he makes a charcoal fire. Peter sees him and Peter jumps into the water and makes his way to the shore Do you remember the last time Peter would have seen a charcoal fire? He was in the courtyard. He had been admitted because he knew John. And he was confronted there three times that he knew Jesus. And three times he said, I don't know this man. And the last time the Bible says that he swore an oath, which means what he was saying was, may God strike me dead right now if I know this Jesus. Now he's coming on the shore because he sees Jesus, and the first thing he sees is a charcoal fire. What do you think Peter's thinking? Do you think there's grief and guilt and remorse 
It would never be for you or for me. But Jesus is gentle with Peter. Jesus confronts him and he's compassionate with him. But Jesus says to Peter, it's time for you to begin the work I have for you. Go feed my sheep. Go take care of my church. I died for my church. I purchased my church. Go teach my church. Between the prologue and the epilogue of the Gospel of John, we see who Jesus is. He says to us, I am the bread of life, I am the good shepherd, I am the door of the sheep, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Seven signs are given to us to show us that Jesus indeed is God. But in these 18 verses, we see, in these verses that begin the gospel, we see why he came. This morning, I want you to see three things in these 18 verses. The last of them might perplex you or be confusing to you, but just hold on. We're going to get there. Number one, Jesus is the Word of God. He is the Word of God. Number two, he is the way from God to God. He is from God, but he's the only way to God. And number three, this is the one that could perplex you. And I want to help us understand it when we get there. Jesus is the work. Jesus is the work of God. In beginning was... The Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. We're thrown back to Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning, same phrase. Everything starts with the Word. John uses a verb form here that we translate was. When we say was, we mean past tense. In the Greek language, this is not past tense. It's a tense that we don't have. It means what has always been, what is, and will always be, the unchanging reality. And what is that unchanging reality? It is the Word. In beginning was the Word. When we read that Word, we we don't have the connection that the first readers had. When a Jewish person read that phrase and saw the word, their eyes lit up. A light bulb went on in their heads because the word represented what was the essence of meaning in life. You ask a Jewish person of that period, where is meaning in life found? And the answer is it's found in the word. It's found in the truth. Where is the truth found? From God. God's given us the truth in his word. You ask a Gentile person, where is meaning found? They would say in the word. Well, what is the word? And they would say it's what's rational, logical. What we think is the meaning of life is the meaning of life. But God raises up John and John writes in the beginning was the word And the Word was with God. 
He uses a preposition here that means to reflect. When you look in a mirror, what do you see? You may see what you don't like, but what do you see? And when I look in a mirror, I don't see Tony. If I looked in a mirror and saw Tony, I would be encouraged and afraid at the same time. When you see yourself, that's what this preposition with means. It means that Jesus is the reflection of God. He's the exact reflection, the exact imprint. He is the essence of who God is, so much so that we can say he always has been, always will be, and is now God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, now we know he's talking about a person. He's talking about Jesus. From the very moment of the entry of time out of eternity in Genesis 1, Jesus was present. He was with God. He is God. This word is active. This word is active from all eternity. Uh, John tells us, verse 3, all things were made through him. The word here that's translated by the word made twice actually means happens. So you could read it this way and read it this way more in keeping with the original language. All things happened through him. And without him, there was nothing that happened that happened. Everything is Present because he is present and he is powerful. This word is active, but it's alive as well. It's not just active. In him was life. This life was the light of man. John is fond of using these radical contrasts in his writings. Life, death, light, darkness, belief, unbelief. Jesus is light. Light is nowhere else but in Jesus. So if light's in Jesus, what's in the whole world? This world in which we live, what's in it? Darkness. The whole world is lost in the darkness of sin. The light of the world is Jesus. In him was life, and this life is the light of all mankind, and the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness does not overcome it. It means the darkness does not put out the light and does not comprehend the light. The light's shining in the midst of this dark world. And that light is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Word of God, who made everything that is, and He made it by Himself and through Himself and for Himself. Jesus is... The Word of God. But Jesus is the way. He will say later, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. He is the way from God and He is the way to God. There's no other way to God except through Jesus. John the Baptist is introduced here in verse 4. People have been perplexed for years. Why is he here? 
Well, we're told there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness. Three times we're told why he's here. He is a witness to the light. Jesus is in the world, and the light is shining in the world. And we're going to learn the world does not see the light. The light has to have a witness, and John is that witness. Who else is that witness? How does the world know Jesus? There's only one way. That those of us who know Jesus bear witness to him. But what does it mean to be a witness? The word from which we get the word witness is a word that in our English language means martyr. Now that is not just something we need to know. That is critical because the baseline for every witness is that we are dead to our own desires and we're dead to the allurements and attractions of this world. We know as believers we have one reason for being in the world and that's to bear witness to the light. We're all John the Baptist. John was devoted to Jesus. So devoted to Jesus that his life was not his own. He had surrendered himself as a witness to Jesus, declaring the truth about Jesus. And what is that truth? Look over at John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day he, that is John, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That word sin is singular. That means every person in the world is born in sin and we're born under the authority of sin and every person in the world whether you live in America or Africa it makes no difference wherever you live in the world we're all under the authority of one sin you know what that is it's unbelief that's what Jesus takes, us, takes away. Uh, Satan blinds us. Uh, Satan controls our minds and our thoughts, our desires and our feelings. He keeps us in unbelief. How does unbelief manifest itself? What kind of God would make only one way to him. What kind of God is that? That's not just, that's not fair, that's not loving, that's not kind, that's not gracious. That's unbelief. Oh, I believe in Jesus, but I don't live under his lordship. That's not belief, that's unbelief. I believe God made me in such a way that I am to choose my own direction in life. I'm to choose my own identity. God doesn't get to determine my identity. That's unbelief. There are a thousand different ways that people are captured by unbelief. I was baptized when I was a child. 
I joined the church when I was a child. I was a part of the church when I was a child, but now I put away childish ways because I don't need that anymore. That is unbelief. Jesus takes away unbelief. He is the way from God to God. So John says the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Jesus is shining everywhere. And he's made the world in such a way that everything in the world that he created bears witness to him. And everything in our conscience testifies to us that he is. He's made us that way. He was in the world, verse 10, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. The world captured by the darkness of the demonic, by snared by Satan and his deception, that's still true. But not only is it true for real people in the real world, regular people in the real world, it's true for religious people. There are people today, particularly in our culture, that are exceedingly, excessively religious. Now, you know, I believe this is biblical. I believe this with all my heart. If you belong to Jesus, you will belong to his church. And you will love his church. And you will be loyal to his church. But I also believe biblically you could be in church every Sunday and be lost. You could be involved in all kinds of good deed activities in and through the church and not know Jesus. That's religion. And religious people need Jesus. Jesus, we're told, came to his own. This is his Jewish family and his own people did not receive him. But, verse 12, that is a radical contrast. The world said no, the religious people said no, but to all. All kinds of people, Jews, Gentiles, regular people, religious people, all kinds of people who did receive him. Who believed in his name. What does it mean to believe? I think what it means biblically, we have lost sight of. Raymond Brown, who is by no means a conservative, who is now dead, wrote these words, believing, quote, involves much more than trust in Jesus or confidence in him. It is an acceptance of Jesus with all that he claims to be. That leads immediately to the complete and full commitment of our lives to him fully, faithfully, finally, and forever. End quote. 
Whoever believes in him is one of John's favorite words. He explains what it means in 1 John. It means to abide in him like a branch in the vine and to be fruit producing. That's what it means to believe. All who believed in his name. Now look carefully at the next words because John here, or Jesus, uh, John here forms a bookend for us. He says first, he gave the right. He gave the right. He gave the right. Our becoming God's children is not first and foremost at our initiative. I will do this when I'm ready. I want to wait right now. No, this is God's work. He gave the right to become children of God. Now, you know what that implies, don't you? It does more than imply it. It means that when you were born, September the 23rd, 1952, I was born. I was born in sin, under sin, under the wrath of God. Every child is. All of us are. You're not born a child of God. I've just spent a week stealing a baby from Ann, holding that little baby in my arms as long as Mama said I could. And look in the face of that baby, that beautiful baby. Who, by the way, looks like our daughter did when she was a newborn. I go back 40 years looking at that little baby and thinking, I'm holding Haley. Looks just like her. But she was born in sin. Every child is. We become children of God because God does his work in us. And in order for us to see that, John addresses the three ways that we tend to think as sinners that people become right with God. Look at them. Verse 13, these are powerful. You should not miss them who were born not of blood. You're not born a child of God, nor of the will of the flesh. There are so many people say, it's my decision, my choice. John says, no, it isn't. Would you open your eyes to the truth? The will of the flesh is the will of our desire, and it's not of the will of man. There's no human being in the universe that can make you a believer. Look, when you share the gospel with a sinner, you should be clear in your communication of the gospel. You should make sure that the gospel is shared completely. You should be passionate in wanting to persuade people to come to Jesus. But when you turn to doing whatever you need to do to get somebody to make a decision, you've stepped outside of what is your work, and you've gotten into God's business. And when we start messing around in God's business, we go from being godly people to demonic people. Don't do what only God can do. 
God can save whomever he chooses to save whenever he chooses to save them. But he will save no human being apart from that person hearing and responding to the gospel. And we need to be clear. And we need to be consistent. And we need to be compassionate in communicating the truth of God, calling people to Jesus. Charles Spurgeon said, there are people who are going to hell and as believers... We ought to know that, but as they make their way to hell, we should have our arms wrapped around their feet, begging them to come to Jesus. Knowing that it's God's work to save them. Thirdly, Jesus is not only the word of God, not only is he the way of God, from God to God, He is the work of God. Well, Jesus explains this to us, that he is the work of God. Turn over to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Jesus had just fed the 5,000. He's teaching them that he is the bread of life. Verse 25, when they found him, John chapter 6, verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father has set his seal." Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Now, here it is. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. God's work was in sending Jesus. And John, beginning in verse 14 piles up these wonderfully beautiful words to show us why Jesus came. He's the word of God. He's the way from God to God because he is the work of God. Number one, he is the one who embodies the glory of God. The word The word represents that which is perfect, that which is pure. Flesh represents that which is putrid and disgusting. John brings them right together. The eternal word of God present at creation, the source and substance of creation, condescended from heaven, came from heaven to earth, and he, he became flesh. He became just like us, entering our sin-filled and sinful world, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. B.R. Hanby wrote these words that became part of a Christmas carol. Who is he in yonder stall at whose feet the shepherds fall? Tis the Lord, O wondrous story. Tis the Lord, the King of glory. At his feet we humbly fall. Crown him, crown him, the Lord of all. The word became flesh. We've seen his glory. We've seen his glory. The word dwelt among us. The word dwelt is the word for tabernacle. 
God first dwelt among us in the Garden of Eden. Don't you remember that? There, Adam and Eve, in the perfection and beauty of Eden, and God was there with them, and when they sinned, what did God do? God did not remove them immediately. He did not remove himself. He came to them. And God continued to dwell among his people in the tabernacle, in the temple, in the pillar of fire, in the cloud, until at last he came. And we've seen his glory. The very presence and power of God, the very purpose of God is found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. The glory of the only Son from the Father. He is the only one. There is no other. There are no alternatives. You either come to God through Jesus or you don't come at all. He is the one who's full of grace. And truth, verse 14, he brings the grace of God based on the truth of God. The truth of God is there is one way to God. The grace of God is that God has brought that way to us. And John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He comes after me, though he ranks before me, because he was before me from his fullness. We have all received Fullness is such a wonderful word because it's a word that's used of a glass and you fill up that glass with water and you get to the top. And if you keep pouring, you can hear someone say, it's full, it's full. And you can say, but I am bringing it to fullness. It's that which just fills up and overflows. That's Jesus. He fills up your life with meaning and purpose and passion and power, and he just keeps giving you all of that. He is the fullness of God. He brings, John says, he brings grace upon grace. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Actually, this phrase, grace upon grace, you may have a different translation because it's hard to translate. You know why it's hard to translate? Because literally, this is what it says. Jesus brings us grace instead of grace. You go make sense of that. Grace instead of grace. What's he talking about? God's grace entered the world according to the Bible from the moment of creation, but it came to its first expression with Abraham. God entered into a covenant with Abraham, but there's a covenant of grace. God extended his mercy to Abraham. But in that old covenant, the standard for living under the covenant of grace was found in the law. And God said to his people, I will bring you a new covenant. I will not ask you to obey the law in order to receive grace. I will come myself. And I will do everything necessary through my life and my death to bring the fullness of grace to you. Grace instead of grace. 
I think many of us in this room honestly struggle with the grace of God. If you're a true blue American, you do. Because you want to do something. You want to earn it. Isn't there something I can do? And Jesus says, no, I stretch myself out on the cross for you. And I cried, it is finished. Receive it. The wonderful grace, the majestic grace, the beautiful grace, the life-changing grace of God. No one has ever seen God. God, the only God who is Jesus. He's made him known. That's why Jesus came, to show to you and me the majestic, wonderful, glorious, powerful, life-changing grace of God. I had not heard this story before, and I want to close with it this morning. In the 18th century, at one point, there were two preachers slash hymn writers who were in the same church in England. One of them, you will know their name. The other, you may or may not. One was named William Cooper, spelled C-O-W-P-E-R. He wrote lots of hymns, but one of them that you will know is, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The other was John Newton. Now, you know John Newton. Amazing grace. They were in the same church. They were friends. William Cooper, you may not know, his entire adult life battled depression. A depression that often brought him to the place of despair. In fact, brought him to the place often of despairing of his life. John Newton was with him once when Cooper was at that place couldn't go on, John Newton prayed with him, went back to his place and sat down. And that day he wrote the words to Amazing Grace. And he wrote one stanza of that hymn just for William Cooper. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. T'was grace that brought us safe thus far. And grace will lead us home. That is why Jesus came. Father, how majestic and glorious that you would come from heaven's throne to earth's footstool. 
and that you would do so in such a way that would show us the, the majesty and the glory and the greatness of your grace. And all of it in Jesus. In his name. Amen.